those ages four to seven dismissed to junior church and uh, anybody eight or nine can get a clipboard if there is anybody I was reminded we have communion today, so uh, <laughs> we'll see how long I go. I make no guarantees. I feel like you guys got done a lot earlier than usual, too. I don't know. You gave me more time. You may get done. You may be eating potatoes at eleven thirty. Who knows? <laughs> you may be eating potato toppings by eleven thirty. You have to at least make it to you know noon. Yeah. No pressure. So I'm continuing on in Luke chapter 1. David has a hat up there. I'm going to use looking at verse 50. We left off at verse 49, looking at Mary's, Mary's song, otherwise known as the Magnificat. And gave a lot of the background last week, but just a reminder, this is Mary has, the angel has come to Mary and told her, you are going to, have a child as a virgin, this child will be the Messiah. And Mary's response to that angel is that, well, she is the Lord's servant, and may it be as he has said. And so she then goes to her cousin Elizabeth's house. Mary, who is also a child, but who is also, who is much older than her. Elizabeth's child will be John the Baptist. But when they meet, Elizabeth has this response where she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and in, starting in verse 42, she says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And then we have Mary's response that follows to that what Elizabeth just said. And it wasn't a short trip to Elizabeth either, so Mary's had time to, to think upon these things, to mull it over. And we have her response below here, beginning in verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So my goal this week is to look at verse 50 and then 51 through 53 is what my plan is. Well, you have this song of praise, right? Mary has 
this wonderful blessing that's happened to her. She will be the mother of the Messiah, right? The, the one who will, who will come, who will, in Matthew, when Josh preached in Matthew, I, I distinctively remember it's, the angel tells, I think it's Joseph, he says, his name should be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, right? This is what the Messiah will do for the people. He will save them from their sins, and she glorifies God in that. And that's what she continues doing through here. But beginning in verse 50 where she says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And I was thinking about that, that idea of the mercy of God. And when you get down to it, there's, God's mercy is received by all people in one way or another. I was... And it is the, the mercy of God is the goodness of God. He relieves the misery of sinful man, of creation that has been affected by sin. And I was thinking about it, and I was thinking in, in heaven, where there is no sin, there is no need for God's mercy anymore. Because you will be in right relationship with him, and there will no longer be a need for him to show mercy. Because everything will be right. And it's just a wonderful thought. Like, and it's weird to say, oh, there will be no mercy of God. But there is no need for the mercy of God there. And it's just a beautiful thing to think upon. But as I looked more into to mercy, I, I got out my, my A.W. Pink Attributes of God book and looked at what he was saying about mercy. And he sort of broke it down into three different ways that God shows mercy. And one of the first things he said is there's a general mercy of God, which is to all of creation. So all of creation experiences God's general mercy. When we had the fall, when, when Adam sinned, and sin is now influencing the world, God is showing mercy by continuing to sustain his creation, by not immediately destroying that creation. He shows mercy in that, and I... Psalm 145, verse 9, says, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. So this is a mercy that extends to all of his creation, not just people, but to all things. Because all of creation has been affected by sin. The fall affected all things. Things are not right. They are not the way God originally created them. Sin caused a problem there. And yet he sustains his creation in spite of that sin. And I was even thinking when you have the flood, right? It is man who has sinned. It is man who God will not contend with anymore. It is man who does right in his own eyes. And yet it affects all of creation during the flood. It is only two of each kind of animal and Noah and his family that are saved. And you could get and say, well, what about the fish in the sea? Well, yes, they were not affected in quite the same way as everybody else. But this, you have this general idea of where all creation suffers because of the sinfulness of man, and yet God sustains it. He shows mercy. He is holy, and it would be right of him to have destroyed it all. And yet he preserved it. He showed mercy. And then he broke down to, he said, special mercy of God to all mankind. So this is mercy, this is getting more specific. It's not a mercy that is to 
all of creation, but this is to mankind in specific. Then turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, and where Christ talks about loving your enemies. But he begins in verse 43, it says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And here's the part I wanted to look at. He says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is where you say, well, how can such a good thing to happen such a terrible person? God shows this, his mercy to sinful man. Those who are in sin still reap the benefits of God's mercy. But it is a limited mercy. Because after this life, that mercy is up. There is no longer available. Those who are not in Christ no longer receive the mercy of God after this lifetime. But it, yet it is, and this might often be called, referred to as common grace, where God shows his goodness to those who are his enemies in spite of their being his enemies because he is good. And then there is sovereign mercy. The mercy to those who are saved, those who are in Christ. Mercy that is extended through Christ. And this is the forgiveness of sins. And it is a resulting right relationship as a result of Christ. So this is a mercy that is extended to those who are in Christ. And this is a mercy that goes on forever. It is eternal. You reap the benefits of this mercy forever. And this is a mercy that is done at God's discretion. He is the one who decides who is going to receive that mercy. And like I was saying, if you have not placed your faith in the mercy of Christ, then it is after this lifetime, it is no longer available. And it's thinking upon what Mary's saying, right? So he, she says, His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. So God has always shown his mercy, like I was saying. There's these different ways that he shows it, different, different areas. But he's always shown it to mankind. But the coming of Christ is now a special manifestation of his mercy. It is now God on earth. It is now living with men. It is now made available to all men. And it, it, I was thinking back... So Genesis, the very Genesis chapter three, the very first promise of God that He will that He will do something about sin, right? The first promise that Christ will come. Genesis chapter three, verse verse five, and this is this is after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit, after they have sinned, right? And God comes to them and He confronts them. Genesis 3, verse 15, not 5. <laughs> I was like, that's not right. Verse 15. 
but he pronounces the curse on the serpent. But then he makes this first promise, and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first pointing towards Christ, and that Christ will make things right, that he will set sin right, that there will be a way made. So this, she's pointing to the mercy that extends, and, that, and this is pointing back to God is fulfilling that promise that he made all the way back in the garden. Christ is coming. The one, the snake crusher is coming. The one who will redeem his people is coming. And this is, she is pointing to that fulfillment. And so, there's a qualification in Mary's statement where she says his mercy extends, so it goes out, it continues on, but it is to those who fear him. She's not speaking of God's general mercy to all of creation. She's not talking about the special mercy of God, which is to all mankind, but she is talking about the sovereign mercy of God, this mercy that will be shown to those who place faith in Christ. Those who fear him is what she's saying. And so then what is it to fear the Lord, right? I was remembering when Josh preached, he was in Isaiah chapter 6, and this is a passage that hopefully you're familiar with. It should be fresh in your mind. But this is Isaiah In heaven, he is before God, right? He has just witnessed the angels flying and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And his response is, Woe to me, right? He is filled with fear. He says, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty, right? His response to being in the presence of God is fear. He says, I am ruined, right? He recognizes who he is in comparison to God and that he can't be there. And yet God intervenes, makes it so he can be there. He forgives his sin. But this fear of God that, we're, that we think about is a reverence for God, holding him in high regard, recognizing who he is, and that we are not him. And it, it is not the natural inclination of man to have a fear of God, to have a reverence for the Lord. And in, in Jeremiah chapter 32, he touches on this, verse 40. Where it says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them. And I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. So this is God making a promise of what he's going to do. But he says, I'm going to make them fear me. I will do it. It is not our natural inclination to have a fear of God. right? It's, we, there tends to be this, like, well, that's... I mentioned I, I like to listen to 
witness encounters, people sharing the gospel with others just to get a get a feel for the interaction, right? To be prepared when that time comes. And you, you, people just, how do you get to heaven, right? What, do you, what happens when you die? And like, well, I've been a good person and, uh, and they'll point out their sin and they're like, well, I think God will have mercy on me when it comes to that point, right? They don't have this fear of God. They don't recognize how holy God is, that they need to do something there needs to be something that makes it right. That just relying on God to be merciful to you when you are sinful and he is holy is not enough. It doesn't, it doesn't make the cut. And, it, and like it says in Jeremiah, God has to put that fear into man. It's not something that we naturally do ourselves. Back to Psalm 103, our scripture reading. There were a few verses in there that, that touched on this specifically. Looking specifically at verse 11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his love for those who fear him. And I think when they when David wrote this, like what is his concept of the heavens, right? He he looks up at the at the sky, he looks up at the stars and he can't fathom how do you get there? In our modern day, we we have the ability to fly through the skies in airplanes, we have the ability to to go to the moon or we have in the past and we have the ability to look in telescopes and see what is out there but it is still an amazing and wonderful thing the more you know the more you understand this is far greater than I am they, they had a grasp of it they count the stars in the sky well I can't there are too many of them we have telescopes we can look out and you see there are there are stars beyond what you can see with your naked eye it just continues it just goes and goes and so for as high as the heavens are above the earth so great is his love for those who fear him so for those who have an appropriate fear of the lord his love is great it is greater than the majesty of the stars in the sky wonderful thing And then verse 17 and 18, it says, But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. So from everlasting to everlasting, it's this statement of like the furthest extreme to the furthest extreme, right? As far as, as everlasting to everlasting, his love is with those who fear him. It never ends. It continues on. It doesn't stop. So it's, it is the fear of the Lord. And then it extends his mercy, right? His mercy extends to those who fear him. That appropriate fear is recognizing who Christ is, what he has come to do. And then she goes on and says, 
It says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And I touched some on what generation implies in the previous last Sunday. But I have this idea of when it says from generation to generation, it implies there's, it's an eternal aspect. It just continues on forever. Even, like we said, there's mercy that is extended to all of creation, and then there is mercy that extended to just mankind, but then there is mercy that is extended to those who are in Christ. And it goes on forever. From generation to generation. And I like that concept of generation to generation also as I contemplate this, where how many of you can point to your grandparents and say they were godly people and they had an influence on me to help me to love the Lord. I, th- I know I can, um, and I'm sure there are many of you here who can as well. But it's not a guarantee, right? We talked about that in Sunday school this week, where don't rely on the godliness of those who came before you for your own godliness. It is about your relationship with the Lord. It is of a great benefit for those who came before you to have that because it influences how they teach you. It influences how they raise you. It is, it is a good thing to grow up in a godly family, to have generations that came before you that you can point to and say, hey, they pointed me towards the Lord. They were of a great benefit to me. And maybe you're the first generation of people that you know of. But then what are you doing for the generations after you? to help point them to the Lord. That is one of the ways the, Lord's, the Lord works towards salvation. That is often how we were talking to someone in Sunday school about young children who come to know the Lord. And it's often because of their family who have taught them the scriptures, who have shown them their need for a Savior. It is a generational thing. And it is no guarantee, because your family is Christians, that you will be. But it is, it is a tool that God uses. Yes, it is this generation to generation of God showing his mercy. It's an everlasting mercy. Those who are in Christ will reap the benefits of the mercy of God for all eternity. Like I was saying when we started, God doesn't, mercy is not necessary in heaven because sin is not there. But the benefits of the mercy that has been shown is there. The benefit of that being in right relationship is there. And so, what is the right response to recognizing God's mercy? In Christ, that third kind, that sovereign mercy. It is praise for him. It is praise for the Lord. And that is what we see here in Mary. Her very first sentence here is, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This recognition of who God is and how wonderful he is for having done this. And it is humility. It is this recognition of your place in comparison to God. 
she recognizes herself, calls herself the bondservant of the Lord, that she is but a slave by comparison to God. And she praises him for the good things that he has done and that he will do. On to verse 51. I sort of see verses 51, 52, and 53 as a grouping together. They all, I think, point in a similar fashion to the same thing. It's where it says, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. But where it talks about he's performed mighty deeds with his arm is you, if, as you do like a survey of the Old Testament, you see lots of references to God's arm. And you'll even see references to the arms of kings. But God uses his arm to knock down kings, to set up kings. There was a reference to Pharaoh and how God was going to break both of his arms and then he would be destroyed. Right? So the, the arm is a, a sign of strength. It is used to denote strength. Right? And so when both of Pharaoh's arms are broken, it implies this weakness, that he will be conquered, that he'll no longer be able to fight. But here, it talks about he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. I was thinking, in a, as I was thinking about this, like in a more modern context, we have this phrase of like, I'll beat you with one arm tied behind my back. You know, like I, you're so weak and I'm so powerful, I can do it with one arm. I think that's sort of a picture of what you have here. Like God's arm is so mighty, he, do, he sets things up with his arm, right? But it's also not to say, like, well, God has any weakness in him where it still requires this show of his arm is so mighty. His arm is mighty. His arm is the definition of mightiness. There is no weakness there. But he's accomplished great things with his strength, performed mighty deeds with his arm. She's recognizing that. And that same phrase goes on and says, he has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So you think you're something. You think you add up to a lot, right? And yet God scatters those who, who are proud. Your pride cannot save you. Your own power cannot save you. Your wealth cannot save you. Only a right relationship with Christ can save you. And that points to like so many of these other verses, right? Um, scatter those who are proud. Brought down rulers from their thrones, right? Those who are in high power, who think they have it all, they still are reliant on the mercy of God. I thought of King Nebuchadnezzar. We're probably familiar with that, where... God humbles him to the point where he is now eating grass in a field, right? This once mighty king, and he is humbled to such an extent he is like a cow, right? But then he recognizes 
eventually God corrects his thinking. And in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34, you have his response. It says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And he he states, His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? So even Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful king, is humbled. He is brought down and he is led to recognize who God is. And you see, a lot of the statements from Nebuchadnezzar are very similar to Mary's statements. There's this this theme throughout scripture, scripture of God's blessing being from generation to generation. Of how God does as he pleases. And that in talking about pride, where he says, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And that's one of my favorite places to go during really difficult times is the book of Job. And begins in like chapter 40, where God comes to Job in the midst of a hard time that none of us, I think, have ever experienced anything like what Job has. And God comes to Job, and he reminds him of who he is, right? Answer me like a man, he says. And then he goes on and tells him all the, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, right? Do you recognize who God is? Do you recognize who you are in comparison? Who are you? And you see that same theme from Nebuchadnezzar there. And you see it reflected in Mary's song here, where he says, He has lifted up the humble, filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. Your position in life is not an indication of your position in relationship to God. And it can even be, wealth can be a distraction. Wealth is not a virtue, and neither is being poor. You can read this and easily say, well, if I'm really poor, then then I've got it made, right? But that's not what's implied here. It's implied... In Mary's life, she was a poor girl. And in some of the context of what's going on is, so she's a poor girl under the reign of Herod, who was a cruel king, under the reign of the Roman Empire, which could be very cruel at times. She's poor. Life is difficult. Life is hard. And those who are rich have it made then. Right? They've, they've got things easy. And she has things very difficult. And yet she says, even though the world around me is saying, you're poor, you're not worth anything, God has looked upon me and said, you are valuable. I will use you. I will bless you. I will use you to bring the Messiah. So, 
my takeaway from these verses is a reminder that God is in control, right? When everything around seems like a mess, we look at the world and we say, oh, it's so terrible. Everything is just a mess, right? We remember that God's in control and he's working out his plan. And that's what Mary was seeing. She was in a very hard time. It seemed like you know, daily existence would have been difficult. And yet God is in control and he's working out his plan. She is now a part of that plan being worked out. And yet she becomes the mother of the Messiah. And I was remembering when Josh was teaching through Matthew in the first chapter a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. About what the Messiah is going to do. So the angel of the Lord appeared to him, and this is Joseph, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Mary and Joseph and the Israelites' biggest problem was not that they were subservient to the Romans or that King Herod was a cruel king. It was a sin problem. It was that they were not in right relationship with God. And yet, God sends the Messiah. And he says, he will save his people from their sins. That is what they needed. They needed their sin problem to be taken care of. As difficult as life was, making your life easy does not solve your problems. It may make things easier for the moment, but it does not solve the eternal problem of being in sin against God. And that is a reminder of what the Messiah is going to do. He is going to make sin right. He is going to provide a way. And so God extends his mercy to all people here and now, but it is not forever. And if you are not in Christ, the mercy of God does not extend beyond this lifetime. And placing faith in Christ is for forgiveness of sins is the only way to receive that mercy beyond this life. And he has made that way. Christ was that way. And that is what Mary is singing about here. This, what a wonderful thing that God has done. She is now the mother of the Messiah. And he is the one who will make sin right. Back to Genesis 3, the, the snake crusher. The one who... His heel will be bruised, but he will crush the serpent's head. That is what is happening here. And that is her praise. So we can be grateful for that and so grateful for our salvation. In spite of difficulty, in spite of all the hard things that happen in life, we, if you are in Christ, you can know you are right with God, that your sins have been forgiven. Close in prayer, and we'll have communion. Dear Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, to share your word, to be forced to dig deep, Lord. Um, I thank you most of all for Christ, for making a way for the forgiveness of sins. Um, let's help us to rest in that. Who know? 
who know you and for those who don't know you, help them to, to seek you out, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your hymn books to 156. When we get to the third verse, we'll have the deacons come and do communion on the third verse. Um, This song kind of reflects some of what we're going to be doing even as we come to do communion. So let's sing 156. Remember the note. I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. I tremble to know that for me he was crucified, that for me a sinner he suffered, he bled and died. Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me, enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. I marvel that he would descend from his throne divine, to rescue a soul so rebellious and proud as mine, that he should extend his great love unto such as I, sufficient to own, to redeem, and to justify. Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me, enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me. I think of his hands pierced and bleeding to pay the debt. Such mercy, such love and devotion can I forget. No, no, I will praise and adore at the mercy seat. On the glorified throne I kneel at his feet. Oh, it is wonderful that he should care for me. Enough to die for me. Oh, it is wonderful, wonderful to me.
At the end of the statement, he talks about receiving this from him. He talks about doing this until he comes. And he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And I thought, uh, you know, one of the things that we have to offer each other in the world is to encourage each other that because we know the Lord, we, we understand this and we can reflect it and worship Him by following through with, with sharing this together. But it also is a testimony to the world of a Christ who came and died for us. And one day we'll return to take us home to be with Him. So as we do this, uh, we do this with the thought in mind that this is something I do to remember what He's done for me. This is a reminder. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter that he would not neglect to remind us of so great a salvation because he doesn't want you to forget. And in a sense, going through this allows us to remind each other that we have a Savior who died for us and has given us a unique relationship with Him. And so as we do this, we remember that and remind ourselves and each other of what He's done for us. Dear Lord, as we uh, take part in this, as we eat the bread that uh, reflects your, your body being broken, as we drink the cup that reflects your blood being shed for our, to remove our sin, we, we recognize in one sense the horror of all that you had to go through, not really completely understanding it, but knowing that it was terrible. But Lord, we come fully purposing that you did this because you love us. And that we want to glorify you and do this in such a way that we are reminded that we are yours. So Lord, as we partake today, let us think about where we're at in our life with you. Let us purpose to give ourselves wholly to you. That we might truly glorify you in all that we do. Thank you for this time together in Christ's name.
dropping my Bible and not in the right place anymore. So, while I'm talking, so I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. said, This is my body broken for your behalf. This do in remembrance of me, each of all of us. Similarly also he took the cup after they had supped, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Thank you all of it. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for your goodness. We're grateful for songs that remind us of what you have done. That truly we are unworthy of what you did for us. And yes, because of your love, you died on a cross. Broken for me. You shed your blood. That you might cleanse me from my sin. And Lord, you rose again to guarantee that what you did actually won over death in the grave. One day, 
We will see you as you are when we walk with you in heaven. We praise you for that. Ask that you would remind us to live for you as we go. We praise you in Christ's name. Remember the meals afterwards, there's potatoes, enjoy, please come and eat. Otherwise many of us may have lots of potatoes to eat later.